Welcome to the Wednesday Bible Study. Uh, we really are at a, a big, big marker today because for those of you, and I'm sure you're out there, that you have been through the study of the Gospel of John. We started it back in August of 2019, and here we are uh, ending the Gospel of John today. We have gone over 33 weeks today. All these things, you know, we didn't know how long we were going to do it. We just did it as it came. There were some vacations in there. All of this has worked out that we start talking about uh, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection right around the time that Easter is actually being celebrated. And now here we are, not knowing how many weeks it would be, and we're going to complete the Gospel of John on week 33. It's incredible. God, thank you for your confirmation. Uh, and today will be uh, one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible, one of the most moving and convicting uh, uh, parts of, of biblical history today, and I cannot wait to jump in it. So I'm not going to uh, give you a lot of information on the front end. Just a couple things you need to know, okay? Uh, themanchurch.com, we've talked about this. If you would like to see a man church service uh, that you can watch from anywhere, a lot of you watched it live. We had it this past Sunday uh, at my home church, Shades Mountain Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. That's where we developed themanchurch.com. That's where the discipleship strategy for men was developed over, over a four-year period. And it features these, these four gatherings. And then in between the gatherings, you have the discipleship classes. You know, we say high challenge at the gatherings and then high equipping between each gatherings, uh, each gathering. And uh, if you'd like to see which, what one of those ga gatherings would look like in normal circumstances, you can see that because we did it virtually uh, at shades.org. And if you'll go there, look at the ministries, and just click on the men's ministry, you'll find a button that shows you Man Church Archives. Go all the way to the most current, and you can watch the entire service, how it was put together, and you can see that for yourself. And you may even find others from the last four years that you want to watch as well. Uh, also, we started our, our virtual Bible studies until we get out of this, you know, social distancing. And one of those is our very own Michael Helms of the Rick and Bubba Show. He's going to be facilitating the pursuit curriculum, which is available at themanchurch.com. And that's our 40-week curriculum uh, that you can use with the discipleship strategy. I teach uh, uh, via video for 12 to 15 minutes every week. And then you get a study guide. Uh, and then you go through the study guide each week. Well, Helmsy will then facilitate one meeting a week via Zoom where you can discuss uh, that's that week's topic and go through the study guide together if you'd like to participate in that. So if you'd like to be part of that, uh, you can contact Helmsy at rickandbubba.com. For those of you that are already part of that, look forward to it. I think it starts tomorrow, your first meeting. Uh, for This will be the last, um, the last Bible study in the Gospel of John. You can find all the others either at rickandbubba.com on the YouTube channel by clicking a playlist and seeing the Wednesday Bible studies. They're all there. Or you can go to burgessministries.com and simply click on uh, the media button or the listen button and, uh, and scroll through the Wednesday Bible study and find them all there. Either way, you can go back and pick up any that you've missed. Uh, and I would encourage you to do that because uh, every time someone comes to me and says, I'm new to the faith, what do you think I should do? I always say, you should go and you should read and study the Gospel of John, and I don't know about you, uh, but this has been used once again to, to change me, to grow me, to mature me in the faith, to convict me, to refine me. As I have been introduced by John, 
Here is Jesus. Uh, and we'll finish that today. Next week, we'll start a new study. It will be on the book uh, from Dean and Sarah, and it's called The Unsaved Christian. Uh, this pastor makes uh, a great point that it's possible in our country, the United States of America, the largest unreached people group may be cultural Christians. And this book is going to uh, show us how to reach the cultural Christian, but it's also going to challenge us to assess ourselves and ask an uncomfortable question, are we cultural Christians? So that will start uh, First Bible Study next week. You can get this wherever books are sold if you want to have a copy yourself and go through that with us. All right, let's open up in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this incredible 33-week journey that we've been on through the Gospel of John. Uh, may you convict us. May you refine us. May you comfort us. May you affirm us. Whatever needs to happen today, Lord Jesus, uh, may your power be sensed in this room and also sensed in the life of every person that is listening to or are watching this live or on an archive. We know that this is a powerful, powerful lesson today as, be, as, as it has been week after week on this entire journey through the Gospel of John. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bible or something with your Bible on it, uh, let's go to John chapter 21. We do know that the, the last time that we uh, left the Gospel of John, Jesus uh, has now been resurrected. He is now appearing to the disciples, and he's going to prepare them for what they now must do before he ascends to the Father. And thanks for the great feedback uh, that I got on last week's lesson. And, and I think this one today uh, is just so powerful, and it's so impactful. And if you leave here today with nothing from this lesson, then something's wrong. It, it's one of those. So, so let's look. Here's what happened. So, so uh, they, they went back to their home. Jesus appeared to them. Uh, now they haven't seen him. Uh, and, and it says, here's what they're doing next. It said, after this, talking about what we studied last week, after this, Jesus revealed himself, hang on to the word reveal, again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. So let, let's take this for a minute. What in the world is the Sea of Tiberias? That's just another name for Lake Galilee or the Sea of Galilee. Uh, I've had the, the honor and the pleasure to stand on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. It's not a sea. Uh, I would call it Lake of Galilee. Uh, I, I research, you know, it, it's fresh water. Uh, it is a lake. I mean, it's a pretty nice sized lake, but it's, we got much bigger lakes where I live, uh, and certainly the Gulf of Mexico and the ocean and a lot of our seas are much larger, but but it is called by the locals Lake Galilee, Sea of Galilee, uh, and also Sea of Tiberias. This is all the same place. John is choosing to use uh, a local name for it, Sea of Tiberias. So, um, and I've stood there. On, I've, I've stood on those rocks, and I have. I've even uh, through this chapter twenty-one. My wife had a great idea as we were standing there because it, it's not that big, so you know wherever you are around uh, the, the, the Sea of Galilee, uh, you're in the area where something happened. And my wife, Sherry, it was such a beautiful thing that she did. She did what happens in, in chapter 21. She actually called out in a loud voice on those famous waters, uh, hey, lads, have you got any fish? Uh, because that's what Jesus is about to do from the banks of the Sea of Tiberias, Lake Galilee, or the Sea of Galilee. Now, we're talking about revealing ourselves too. The disciples left Jerusalem. They returned to Galilee. Why? That's what they were told to do. Uh, they're not all together. 
Uh, you see here, we're going to see here in a minute, they've, they've gone out in smaller groups. They're not staying together. We've got, I think, seven of them here in this situation. Uh, Jesus revealed himself. Uh, uh, if, you, if you talk about the, him revealing himself, you know, revelations are, are common throughout the Gospel of John over the last 33 weeks that we have been studying this. John the Baptist came that Jesus might be revealed to Israel. If you remember this back in chapter 1, uh, the first sign in chapter 2 was to reveal his glory. And throughout his ministry, you know, climaxing there on the cross, Jesus revealed his Father's name. There's a revelation again. And, of course, the resurrection of, of his body, which we just had, revealed himself, you know, that he is who he says he is. So this, this word revealed is throughout the Gospel of John. And here it is again. It says Jesus revealed himself again, uh, and he does so uh, from the banks, as you'll see, of the Sea of Galilee. So who all's there? Uh, look at chapter 2. I mean, sorry, verse 2, chapter 21. Uh, we see Peter first, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin. We covered that last week. Nathaniel's back uh, of Cana in Galilee. We haven't heard from Nathaniel uh, since back in chapter 1. He, he's back. Now, he's been there the whole time, but John just is not. Uh, John hasn't talked about him much. Uh, the sons of Zebedee, we know that's John and James. And then two others of his disciples were together, and he doesn't name who these other two were. So let's break this down a minute. Peter's mentioned first. Now, these are things that a lot of uh, a lot of commentators talk about this, and, and I think we see that there's probably evidence that this is true. Peter had been given some unofficial, if not official, uh, you know, leadership authority in the disciples. You know, Peter is 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 one of the older disciples. Uh, he has some leadership qualities. He's a man of action, and uh, many of the commentators think the reason why John mentions him first is to once again show some, some obvious leadership role that he's placed in, uh, kind of like their unofficial leader. Uh, and, of course, Thomas is back. I said Nathaniel and, and, who, and all the others that are there. So we have a total of seven people, uh, seven of the, of the disciples are there. So uh, verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Once again, showing leadership. Notice the others don't decide they're going fishing until Peter says he's going fishing. And, they, and then they're like, if you're going to fish, we'll go, we'll go with you. Now, I want some of you, I know you've probably chased some of the commentaries here where they come down pretty heavy on Peter and, uh, and these disciples that they have just seen the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's appeared to them in a locked room. He says, go to Galilee and I'll join you there. And they go fishing. Well, I, I wouldn't read a whole lot into that, because I know it's hard to imagine um, that this would happen. And, and keep in mind, Pentecost has not happened yet. Now, I know last week we got into some of the commentary about Jesus, you know, breathing the Holy Spirit on them. Some think that's just John's passing comment of what happened at Pentecost, happened at Pentecost. Some, you know, believe Jesus gave them kind of a, a power to start understanding more, but it wasn't the full uh, Holy Spirit, which happens obviously at Pentecost, that these two events look too different to be the same event. Certainly that's fair. Of course, there is one issue. Thomas isn't there. Uh, he doesn't come till eight days later. So did Thomas not get that first sprinkling of the Holy Spirit? Then some say, well, yes, he did. He got it when Jesus said, here's my wounds. And then he said, my God, my Lord, that was his moment to get this 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 beginning of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gave him. It doesn't matter. The bottom line is this. It's hard to imagine, and I don't think we would see this behavior, that this same bunch would just go fishing after Pentecost. There's no indication that 
that they that they ever went back to fishing again after that. But keep in mind, we haven't gotten there yet. And some people say they went to Galilee by obedience, and they likely were waiting around on what Jesus wanted them to do, and it's no more complicated than they needed something to eat uh, or they needed to make some money. So Peter, this is his trade. I mean, picture this. So picture if it, whatever you do for a living uh, and however you feed your family or feed yourself, if Jesus had appeared to us uh, after the resurrection, had told us to go to Galilee, which is where we were kind of all from anyway, uh, we all go back to Galilee and we're waiting around. Somebody says, I wonder what's going to happen. I say, I don't know. But then somebody said, well, what do you want to do? We need to eat. I'd probably go do what I normally do to make money until I was told something different. And, and most people say that we shouldn't read any more into it than that. Uh, Peter's actions, uh, the reason why that I don't think you need to be too hard on Peter and the guys here is because you're going to see Peter, as we get toward the end of this, he's not the runaway guy anymore. Now, he's not as bold as he's going to be after Pentecost, but he's going to show you at the end he never went to Galilee to hide from Jesus. Or he's not in Galilee you know, not wanting to encounter Jesus again or scared of the authorities. He simply probably has got them fishing because that's what they know how to do, and they need some fish to eat uh, or for money. Again, don't read this as it's Peter running away from Jesus again because I don't think that would uh, have much standing. Uh, let's look at verse 4. Just as day was breaking, meaning they'd been fishing all night, and, they, and John's already told us this, that they didn't catch anything. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, and it's so cool that I've been able to stand on that very shore. Not sure it's in the, the exact same place, but again, it's not a big, big lake, so I was close. Anyway, so Jesus uh, is standing on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So here we go with this again. Now, this may be this mystery of sometimes Jesus is recognized, sometimes he's not. Could be that. Or it may just be we know that the sun has not come up all the way or it's coming up, and sometimes you got an early morning fog or there's a mist or it just hasn't got light enough yet. It may simply be they can't tell who this is. So it may not be that they clearly saw the person of Jesus and they couldn't recognize him. It could simply mean it's just too dim to see him or the, the, the mist of the morning is, is blocking their, their clarity. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. Now this is, this is, uh, this is beautiful. Because if you go back and look at the, the original Greek on this, this phrase, children, do you have any fish? He's not speaking to them, you know, like children. We obviously know this. A better uh, interpretation, if you go back to some of the way the English people talk, or you've heard in, and maybe even in the Irish people where they use the word lads, you know, they, they, we say children here because it's a, a later translation of, of, it's the English standard version that I, that I teach out of, and, and he's just given us a word uh, that, that we can grasp in the English, English standard, but you almost picture, you know, the, the very, very casual, lads, have you any fish? Lads, have you caught anything? We've all been there. If you fish, you know, out there, if you're watching or listening, uh, I love to fish, and I remember fishing with my dad, and we would be in boats, and if you came up and you kind of went by somebody that was fishing in the area, just off from where you were, what would you say to him? Hey, man, y'all catching anything? That, that's all that's happening here. Uh, so here's the thing. Why listen to a person that we just heard John say they didn't recognize? So they don't know it's Jesus yet. So why would they 
throw the net on the side that this person said to. Interesting. Uh, well, among the fishermen, you know, all fishermen are very superstitious people. You know, if you have somebody who fishes and is a baseball fan, you've probably met the most superstitious person on the planet. Uh, fans of baseball and people who fish are very superstitious people. Well, this was pretty common uh, in the fishing circles then, um, especially in, in the Greek society when, when there's so many people speaking Greek here. Um, the right side means good luck. So th th it might have just been a fishing term that was common that anybody on the shore would say, hey, y'all catching anything? Hey, we haven't caught anything. We've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. Hey, won't you try the right side of the boat? It's almost like bringing up something that normally would bring you good luck, which is probably why they did it uh, anyway, even though they had not recognized that it was Jesus. Of course, Jesus is telling them to do this. Why? Because he knows where the fish are located. You'll see in a minute, I, Jesus doesn't have an issue finding fish. Uh, so he knows where the fish are located, and he's telling them to throw in that direction. And they know that when they, and here he, John tells us, when they cast it on the right side of the boat, they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. So look at verse 7. That disciple who Jesus loved, John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. See, now they know now, this is not just anybody. We remember, which is what we need to do, anytime we get into times of uncertainty or despair or something isn't happening, and then we need to remember what God has already done and it's probably an indicator of what he's likely to do. And so the minute they can't get this net in, uh, John says to Peter in this beautiful moment, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Now this is typical, again, of these two personalities. You remember back uh, at the tomb, there, there were the personalities. John was eager, and, and John, of course, was always very good with quick insight. He gets to the tomb. He sees it's empty. He gets there first, eh, apprehensive. Peter gets there. He plows right in. So you see these personalities again, and that's what the beautiful thing about the uniqueness of God and the people he's created. Here are these personalities, and God gave you your personality, but he needs to redeem that personality to put that personality to work for him, not to work for you or me or not to not for work for, for the adversary or for the flesh. You know, he's not trying to change our personality. He's trying to redeem it. So here's Peter. So Peter, where John was quick for insight, Peter is always quick for action. So John says, it is the Lord. Peter jumps in the water. Okay, and there's some other things to talk about here that are just interesting. Why is he swimming with his outer garment? Uh, you would think that would bog him down. You would think he would just leave it in the boat or, or whatever. But, but understanding the culture, if you look at the word that is used here in Greek, it's very similar to what Jesus did when he tied a towel around his waist to wash the disciples' feet. Likely what you had here is the outer garment was important, especially when he gets to the shore, and Peter took it and likely tied it around his waist in some way, and they would either bring it up through the legs, almost making like a pair of underpants with the outer garment because he had taken all that off because he's probably working with very little clothing on. So he's just finding a way to take it with him. He's not taking the outer garment like a coat and a robe and throwing it over the top of him and jumping in the water because that wouldn't make much sense. He probably just tied it to himself 
as Jesus tied the towel around his waist to get in the water, which is interesting. Uh, let's look at verse 8. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Now, this is kind of beautiful, too, because first of all, Mr. Man of Action, Peter, just dove into the water and is swimming to the shore to see the Lord, but he's left his fellow fishermen with a net full of fish that they can't drag in. Peter just, in the moment, he's gone. He's, he's gone to see Jesus. But this also lends itself to authenticity that these are not made-up stories because you see that John now shifts to telling us what's happening from the boat. You know, if, if you were just going to make up a story, then you would start saying, and then Peter said to Jesus, and Jesus said to Peter, and they started talking. Well, it's impossible for John to know that because he's writing this, and he's like, Peter left me in the boat with the other guys. There were likely two boats out there, but he left me in, in, in the boat that I was in with him, and I don't know what happened between him and Jesus while I'm still sitting in the boat, but I can tell you what I saw. I saw we we're about 100 yards off, and I saw that Peter left us in the boat, and we're trying to drag some fish in that we can't get in. So it, it really is a kind of a cool perspective. I mean, uh, uh, it's a cool perspective to know there's John now narrating from the boat. So let's look at uh, verse 9 and 10 now. When, when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Okay. Uh, also, let's look at this. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. So hang on. So a couple things that we, we need to know. First of all, we see that when they, they get to the shore, here's Jesus with a charcoal fire. Interesting. You would think Jesus, Jesus would just say, I need some fire, and there it would be. But again, he's, you know, he's still he's trying to get on their level. But you know what's happening again here? First of all, Jesus also got some fish somewhere. But here it is again. Jesus is providing for the disciples. He's taking care of them. He's serving them just as he washed their feet. Hey, bring some of the fish you caught to go with what I've got because now we've got you know, a much bigger party now. And, um, and let me help you with that. And, uh, and I've got a fire here. I've got some fish going, and I'll take some of those fish, and I'll make breakfast for everybody. The Lord of Lords and the King of Kings is willing to make breakfast for the disciples. I, I mean, you got to... I mean, I can't get enough of that. So here's something in verse 11 we know we notice too, which I think is interesting. So Simon, so so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of fish. Interesting tidbit that you will get here. That must mean something else. They can't get the fish in without Peter. Peter must be very strong uh, because here's Jesus. I've got fish on the fire, but I need more fish because now there's going to be eight of us as opposed to, to me by myself. And so why don't you go get some of the fish that I showed you where they were and that you caught. Go bring them here. Well, undoubtedly, they weren't to him yet because these guys needed Peter's help to get the fish onto the shore. So here's verse 11. says it very clear uh, that big, strong Peter, Simon Peter, went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of fish. Couldn't get ashore until Peter started helping. Uh, and that'll preach too, by the way. But now here comes this 153. I could talk about 153 fish for the rest of our time together today, and I'm not going to. There's all sorts of commentary on this. Most of them are outlandish. Most of, most of them require a lot of 
going through all kinds of things that I don't think are going to help us at all today. It's 153 fish. I, here's what I like about 153 large fish. I like the fact that John said they counted them and he remembers it. We can take that to say there's nothing wrong with, you know, when we become fishers of men, of saying we had this many people that made a decision for Christ today, then their fruitfulness or lack thereof will show us whether it was sincere or not. Certainly, you probably want to spend more time on the fact that the nets didn't break. Now we can spend some time on that uh, because th there's probably more symbolism in that than the 153 because if you go to Luke 5, 1 through 11, write that down, you remember the last time Jesus said, throw the, throw the net over here, and it said there were so many fish the net would break. So in, in Luke 5, 1 through 11, the net breaks. Here in John 21, the net full of fish does not break. And, and the great symbolism there is we're getting to the completion. Jesus is about to ascend to the Father. These are gospel nets now representing the gospel about to go forth, and the gospel nets will never break, and all fish can be held with no issue of being, being in the net. Meaning now the gospel is now taking, taking uh, you know, the, the redemption possibilities and making redemption available to all fish and all whosoever now can be taken without fear of I'm not included and I can't be in the net or the net's going the net's going to break because there's just too many of us. Now that symbolism we can certainly have we can we can lay in there a minute and enjoy that, but I, I wouldn't spend a lot of time on the 153. If you enjoy that kind of stuff, you certainly can, but we don't have time for that today in the study. I like the net not breaking symbolism much much better, and I certainly can take a lot more out of that. The 153 commentaries require so much thinking. I find myself not even caring by the time I'm at the end. All right, so let's go to verse 12 and 13. Uh, can't get the time back by the way I spent on that. All right, let's go to 12 and 13. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. All right, so, so hang on. Now, let's get to 13. Jesus came back and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. So we're getting fish and bread. Now listen to this. They are a bit hesitant. Does that surprise you? They're a bit hesitant. Uh, he, he had to say, come on, let's see, come down, come have breakfast. Notice the difference. That it, now John is not saying, you know, dare not ask versus they did not ask. They, they know it's the Lord. And what he's saying that, that they dare not, they dare not ask, is it really you? You know, remember, they're still trying to, there's not, they're not sure if it's him or not. That's out. What they're saying is their belief that Jesus has, has risen from the dead and that he's now teaching them, now they don't know the amount of time, they're not going to offend Jesus or annoy Jesus by continuing to say, are you sure it's you? Are you really here fixing us breakfast? I can't, but is it really you? Is it really you? And John's saying, we dare not do that. Uh, but they are hesitant because, why? Jesus rose from the dead. And now he's sitting on the shore He's told us to catch the fish again. He's making us breakfast. We saw him on the cross. John, who wrote the, you know, the, we're reading gospel, the gospel of John. I saw him put the big spear in his side. I let you guys know he was dead. Now he's alive. He's walked into a locked room. We, then he went away again. He told us to go to Galilee. We were doing fishing. Here he is on the shore. He's cooking us breakfast. Man, we can't believe this. Is this really happening? And so John said, we dare not do that. But it's still that uneasy transition. He's serving them food, uh, and I love this. The reason why he's doing this is because of this hesitation. He realizes their mind, 
Their minds are being blown. And what he's trying to do is say, look, let's settle into something familiar. I've got some fish here. I've got some bread. Let me serve you. Let me comfort you. Let me get you settled down. And here comes the biggie takeaway for this week because I'm about to teach. Let me settle you. Everybody settle. Everybody get here on the shore. Let's all settle in. It's me. Here's food. Here's breakfast. I'm serving you. Let's calm. All right, now look at 14. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now this speaks to the disciples only because we know he appeared more times than this to other people. But this, all John is saying is, as far as we are concerned, the disciples, he revealed himself to us for a third time. Now, now this is revelation number three for us after the resurrection. And now we'll move into one of the most moving moments in all of Scripture. How's that for a, a tease? Verse 15. So, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him, the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Man, I tell you, emotion rises up in my spirit every single time I read this. I've had the pleasure of, you know, kind of skimming over it in lessons past, but I really want to dive in today. I want to dive in. For us to end the Gospel of John on this is incredible. So what's going on here? And there's a lot of commentary on it. And, um, and I think today I'm going to take the, the Calhoun County part of this and I'm going to take it down to what's, what we really need to care about in this. And, um, and that's Peter appealing to Jesus. You know, Peter is appealing to Jesus and you know what he's saying, and I can relate to this so very much. Peter knows that he's denied Jesus three times, just like Jesus told him he was going to. And that really, really has to bother Peter. Because Peter, what, had made bold statements that he was more committed to Jesus than anyone. And Jesus told him, I know you think that. But when you're sifted and when you're tried, you're going to abandon me because you don't understand what we're doing. And you've got a lot of spit. You've got a lot of fire, but you don't have a lot of knowledge. And you don't even understand what you're committing to. You don't understand it. And you're going to deny me. And Peter was so certain that he wouldn't. See, I, I can relate to that because I know that when I was a child, that I believed in Jesus. And I know that I heard the gospel clearly 
and I never doubted it. And I would tell everyone that I believe in Jesus. I told everyone that, uh, that I was a Christian. But then I, I hit a period of my life when, like Peter, I was challenged to stand up for Jesus, and I denied him. And I denied him. And the scripture says that I was more than willing to crucify Jesus all over again because I began to turn and live a life in opposition to Jesus for 13 years. I denied Jesus many more times than three. And, and I know the feeling of Peter when I was trying to get this all worked out when I was 31 years old. And there was the moment that I just came before Jesus like Peter. And Peter is saying to Jesus, as this question keeps coming at him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And that, um, you know, here, here's Peter just saying to Jesus, Jesus, you know everything. So, so I, I'm right now having so much faith that you know everything that you also know that I'm sincere in what I'm saying. Be careful with the three types of love that may not stand against scrutiny because some of these different Greek words for love they weren't really being used the way that we know they're used now when John wrote this. So a lot of commentary that I read says, and I've heard that preach before that he was asking him three times because it was different types of love. In my, in my humble opinion of the things I've read since then as I've become more educated on it, I'm not sure that stands. I really think it's no more complicated and more likely that Jesus is asking the question three times and it's the exact same question all three times. Because he's trying to, to, to probe deeply to the depth of Peter's being, not wanting him to, to answer the, in terms of, of his relative strength. You know, like, is your love stronger for me, Peter, than these people? Since you're the one that said that you were more devoted to me than him. I don't think he's shaming Peter here at all, but he's reminding Peter that he is acknowledging the elephant in the room. I know that you're thinking that you denied me three times, and I know that probably has you in an uncomfortable position with me, and we're not going to ignore that you denied me. Now, that's a scary thought, but it's also a comforting thought, meaning Jesus is going to take the initiative and say, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. I'm back, and let's talk about it. I know you regret doing it, so let's talk about it. And he's not comparing his love as stronger than the disciples. What he's really doing is trying to get Peter to deal with the reality of the situation between he and Jesus. This is the best daily devotional. If you're listening, I'm picking up a copy of Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest. And my wife knows how much I love this daily devotion. Uh, she introduced me to it. It is the best daily devotion that I've ever read. It's the most convicting daily devotion that I've ever read. So just so you know, I have a lot of respect for Oswald Chambers and how God used him and how his wife put together these great sermon notes for us. Did you know that Oswald Chambers, and my wife told me that uh, last week as I was preparing for this over the weekend, she said, do you know that Oswald Chambers, in my utmost for his highest, devotes three full days 
to John chapter 21 and the simple question to Peter, do you love me? March 1, March 2, and March 3 in the, uh, the yearly devotional, my utmost for his highest, Oswald Chambers takes three days and devotes it to do you love me and then tend to my sheep. So I'm just going to, we don't have time for me to read all three days to you, but know that that's how important Oswald Chambers thought this was as well. But listen to this. This was Peter who had already said to Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. You can find that in Matthew 26, 35, also in, in verses 33 and 34. He says, our natural individuality or our natural self boldly speaks out and declares its feelings, but the true love within our, within our inner spiritual self can be discovered only by experiencing the hurt of this question of Jesus Christ. Do you love me? Peter loved Jesus in the way any natural man loves a good person, yet that is nothing but emotional love. It may reach deeply into our natural self, but it never penetrates to the spirit of a person. True love never simply declares itself. Jesus said, whoever confesses me before men, that is, confesses his love by everything he does, not merely by his words, him, the Son of Man, will also confess before the angels of God, Luke 12, eight, uh, verse 8. Unless we are experiencing the hurt of facing every de deception about ourselves, we have hindered the work of God in our lives. The Word of God inflicts hurt on us more than sin ever could because sin dulls our senses. So Oswald Chambers is saying, Jesus Christ is asking Peter, do you love me? And this is going to hurt Peter in a way that will finally get him to declare the proper answer. Sin can't even do that. Peter's guilt couldn't get him there. Your guilt can't get you there. My guilt, I had never gotten to the point that I hated sin enough for, for that guilt to turn me back to a true devotion to Jesus. You know what turned me back to a true devotion of Jesus? Jesus. Jesus. When I finally figured out who Jesus really was, and, 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 and I was in awe of his holiness, and I was in awe of who I'd actually sinned against, and in the moment of his piercing question to me, Rick, do you love me? Was, was, was only when I heard it from him and the Holy Spirit convicted me is when I could finally hear the answer, then obey me. Then obey me. And Peter appeals to Jesus. And you see that Peter finally gets to the point that he's dealt with the sin and he says, despite... Say, man, I hope this gets to you today. Some of you, I know I do, you need to hear this. Despite my bitter failures... Jesus, you know that I love you. And Jesus accepts this because he says, feed my lambs. He's saying to Peter, you need to pastor my flock. If you love me, then do what I told all of you to do. If you love me, be about the Great Commission. If you love me, make disciples. If you love me, then go out to this dying flock of people who need to be redeemed and tell them who I am. Do what I told you to do if you really love me. Peter loves the Lord. 
And, and, and it's also evidence, what, of his reinstatement. His love for the Lord and his reinstatement by the Lord are both being displayed here because Peter does go out and he does pastor the Lord's flock. And, of course, the obvious that Peter's asked three times. Why? Because he denied Jesus three times. Jesus could have just said one time, Jesus, uh, Jesus could have said, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Okay, well, then here's what I want you to do. One would have been enough. But why does Jesus take the time to do it three times? Because he doesn't want there to be anything left in Peter's being that Satan could attack. See, Satan would come up to you and say, well, you know, you, you denied Jesus three times. Did, did, did he, does that mean that he just forgave you for one of them? Now, what Jesus is doing is saying to Telestai again, your repentance and your redemption is complete. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes. Yes. Lord, why do you keep asking me this? You know all things. You know that I love you. So Peter finally gets to where he needs to be. Hey, Jesus, you know everything. Look inside me right now. Don't you see that I love you? And Jesus said, yes. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Tend to my lambs. Pastor and take care of my flock if you really love me. You know what this is? This is John 14 on display again. If you really say you love me, then obey me. And if, and if you're looking in your life right now and you don't see obedience to the Lord, he says you really just say you love me, but you don't really love me because what have we talked about in here for 33 weeks and what have we talked about in here for four years? It's what we do that is the truth, not what we say. Jesus, do you love me? Hey, Jesus, I love you. You do? Are you doing what I said? Are you making disciples? Are you leading your family? Are you, are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? Women who are watching this, are you respecting your husband? Or do you continue to gossip, gossip, disrespect your husband? Husband, do you continue to let your wife be the spiritual leader of the home? Have you gone out and told anybody about Jesus? Have you done anything that Jesus says that you should do? Have I done anything that Jesus said we should do if we really love him? Yes or no? And I'll tell you one thing, we don't reply if we love Jesus, is to abuse his grace. Peter certainly isn't an example of that. As a matter of fact, Jesus is about to tell him what he can, what he can expect. But he'll never be the same because he's about to be given the power to not be the one who denies Jesus ever again. By the way, we should look into that. Oh, you know, Rick, I deny Jesus, but I just keep on doing it. Peter didn't. He didn't. Oh, so Jesus actually changes people. Yeah, he does. Now, you might stumble here or there in a new area, but you just don't keep committing the same sin over and over again. You really don't. Not because who you are, not because who I am, not because of our great self-control, not because of our great you know, commitment to a code of conduct. We stop committing the same sins when Jesus says, stop, if we really love him. And he gives us the power to do it because he's sweeter than the sin. See, Peter is experiencing Jesus in a way. He gets it now. Crucifixion, okay, I got it. Resurrection, I got it. Okay, I'm getting the Holy Spirit, I got it. Now I'm being told what to do. I got it. I understand now. Bottom line is, you can't claim ignorance anymore. And I think that sometimes, speaking to myself, 
I stayed in ignorance about Jesus because I could use it as an excuse. By the way, it's not one. Because we have been given studies like this and the Word of God to know what to do. And I think sometimes we're afraid to know all about it because we realize the standard of following Jesus is actually incredibly high. And the standard of devotion and love of Jesus demands a lot more of us than we've been willing to give. But the only problem is if we're not willing to give it, we don't really love him. We continue to deny him. So Jesus fully reconciles Peter just as he has reconciled me and he will reconcile you. I've been there, man. I know. I, I, I love that Jesus keeps confirming over and over again about his love and his devotion. And then he finally just appeals to Jesus' knowledge of all things. Jesus says, feed my lambs. Peter is told to tend and feed Jesus' flock. Now, some people have taken Peter and elevated him to a place that Peter doesn't want to be elevated to. Because if you look, it's not Peter's flock. He didn't say, Peter, tend your flock. Pastors, he didn't say that. He said, Peter, tend my flock. The flock belongs to Christ, not to you or anyone else. We're tending his flock. We answer to him as the master. He's not elevating Peter to a place that Peter does not elevate himself. Hey, Rick, how do I know if Peter needs to be elevated? Well, why don't we look and see what he's saying? 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, write it down. 1 Peter chapter 5, here's the elder Peter. And here, what does he say? So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but by being examples to the flock. Next, and when the chief shepherd appears, You'll, reveal the unfade, you'll, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter himself says, I'm a fellow elder. I'm a fellow shepherd of the same flock. It isn't mine. It isn't yours. It is God's. And you live out to the flock an example of what you expect them to do. And your example be the example that we got from Jesus. And when God comes back for his flock, you'll receive a well done. He doesn't see himself above anyone. Peter says, I'm a fellow elder. He's instructing his fellow elders to shepherd the flock of God. So where do we get off elevating Peter to a place he doesn't elevate himself? Now, what happens next? Now Peter is told the deal. That's the beautiful thing about Jesus is he's never held back from us what we should expect if we really love him. Look at verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you would stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John clarifies, look, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Wait a minute. So Jesus talks to Peter about Peter denying him when the chips were down, forgives him of it. Peter has a devoted love for Jesus that Jesus acknowledges is sincere. 
gives him instructions about what to do now that he's been redeemed, and then tells him that he's going to die because of his devotion to Jesus. You're going to die. You'll die for me, and I know you will, and I'll give you the power to do it. You won't be alone. Now, there's a lot of commentary on this too, but anytime Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it, it means he's going to prophesy. He's going to give you prophecy. Peter's being told he will be a martyr for following Christ, but his death, like all suffering and death, will be for those who love Christ, and it will bring praise and glory to God. I've talked about this verse so many times. Now maybe you understand it a little better and why Peter wrote it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Peter takes what Christ taught him and then tells us that if you love Christ, your pain and suffering, if you pass the test, uh, it will bring glory and praise to God. Uh, by the time the gospel was written, Peter had glorified God by being a martyr likely in Rome, under Nero. And I want you to think about this for a minute. Let's have some sympathy for John for a minute, can we? I know he outlived all of the disciples. So why should we have sympathy for John? Because he outlived all of the disciples. He and Peter were tight. Okay, can you imagine what it was like for John to have to write these words to us, remembering that his friend was martyred? He has to write the words of what Jesus said to him about stretching out his hand for his crucifixion and that people would lead him to the cross just like they led Jesus to the cross. And John has to remember this. John's own brother, James, was martyred right out of the gate. You think he didn't love his brother? You think he didn't love Peter? You think he didn't love the other brothers? They all had received their crown of glory, and he had to watch them all be killed. And he's still here. So have some sympathy for John as well, because that must be a very difficult place to be. Sometimes dead is better. So John is, is writing about this. Now, I know a lot of you are already saying, you know Peter was crucified upside down. We think that may be the case, but honestly, that kind of has a, a more feel of legend than actual documentation. We do know he was crucified, because that was documented. Whether he was crucified upside down or not may or may not happen. Some people say that his legend just grew. That may not have been the case. Here's what we know. He did not deny Jesus, and it led to him being crucified. That we know. Uh, he, um, that is not disputed. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the indelible shame that Peter bore for his public disowning of the Lord Jesus Christ on, uh, on that night, he was sentenced to death, was forgiven, by the Lord himself, and then was overwhelmed by the apostles' fruitful ministry uh, and, of, call, of course, the fact that Peter would be martyred. Bottom line is this, don't, and this is, this is what we need to know, and this is great. You're going to love this about redemption. I lived a very shameful life. I, I lived a life as shameful, shameful as any human being on this planet. But here's what my goal is, is to be like Jesus and to be like Peter and those that follow Jesus. Jesus Christ is so powerful that the devotion to Jesus and the things that Peter did, the fruitfulness of Peter's life after he was redeemed and forgiven by Jesus far overshadowed any of the time he shamed Jesus. And that's my goal. And it ought to be yours too. 
that our life, the fruitfulness of our life will far after redemption, will far overshadow the embarrassment and the shame and the rejection and the damage that we did to Jesus when we didn't know him or when we knew him and we denied him. See, we don't remember Peter just for his denial of Jesus. We remember that, that Peter advanced the kingdom of God and never denied Jesus again and was fruitful and said, I, will, I am martyred now because of my devotion to Jesus. Now that is undeniable. That's not commentary. That's historical fact. And look at Jesus here. Look at this. Jesus tells Peter of these visions of how they would take you to the cross and he's going to reach out his hand and they're going to put the, the beam across him and they're going to lead him to the cross for him to be crucified just like Jesus, whether it was upside down or regular, it was brutal. Jesus tells him he's forgiven. Jesus tells him he believes that he loves him. He tells Peter that, that, that I know you're going to come through for me and you know what? You're actually going to be martyred. And then what's the next thing that Jesus says? Follow me. <laughs> Verse 19. After saying this, he said to Peter, follow me. You know the deal. Follow me. Why are we so surprised when bad things happen to us? Do you know that doesn't surprise me at all? You know what surprises me is the incredible grace I've been afforded. And Peter took on that attitude. Compared to the things I've done to you that you have just forgiven me, and you said not only will I forgive you, I'm going to use you to advance the kingdom, and I'm going to have you tend to my flock, that, that, that surprises me much more than if you were to kill me right here and now. And Jesus says, follow me. And Peter did. And Peter did. Look at verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at the table close to him, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? So here's the vision. Peter, John's following behind Peter and Jesus. They're talking about the fact that Peter's going to be martyred. The reconciliation has taken place, and John and Dally is following you know, behind him. Um, and really showing once again that Peter Peter is just a man. And I love this. I'm picturing some of my dear friends. And let's say that, that Jesus had pulled me aside and some of my fellow disciples are with me. I can so see this. And Jesus just told me, you're going to be martyred and you're going to suffer for the kingdom. It would probably be likely that I would point to one of my other brothers and say, well, what's going to happen to him? What's his deal? And uh, because John establishes who he is and that he and Jesus are very close and that he and Peter are very close. And so John wants you to know that it's him that, that Peter is talking about. And listen to what Jesus said to this. Jesus said to him in verse 22, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. A uh, little shut-up juice for Peter and for us. You know what Jesus told Peter? It's none of your business what happens to John. That's of no concern of yours. What are you going to do for me? Don't worry about what John's going to do for me. What are you going to do for me? 
hey, hey, Jesus, you've called me to this, but what, what are you calling so-and-so to do? None of your business. See, we got to quit worrying so much about what everybody else's call is on their life. Hey, what Jesus called you to, he may not call somebody else to. Now, there's the general stuff that we're all called to, but the way it's accomplished varies wildly. And I had to deal with that. I had to deal with it. This Bible study I'm doing right now, there was a time that I thought on the Rick and Bubba show that, hey, all of us on the show should all be doing the same things. That's not biblical. I, I, I don't know what, what, what Jesus is telling Speedy to do. I don't know what Jesus is telling Bubba to do. I don't know what Jesus is telling Greg to do or Helms to do or Adler to do. I don't know the details of their call. Now, we have a general call that we're a team, but I'm the one teaching this lesson because that's what Jesus told me to do. Does that mean the other guys should teach lessons? No, not, not if that's not what Jesus called them to do. Uh, you know, my individual call, there's, there's the call of the team, like the disciples, and then Jesus saying, but I've got individual calls. Think about this. What Peter is, doesn't know yet is James, John's brother, who is martyred immediately, he's going to be with Peter in jail, and, and, and Peter is going to get out of there alive, and James is going to get killed. I mean, James could very easily say to Jesus, if James knew his deal, what about Peter? And then you know what Jesus would say? If Peter remains till I return, that's of no concern of you. How about this? Peter is going to serve me for an amount of time. You're going to serve me for an amount of time. Do what I told you to do. Y'all know what I told the team to do, but then do what I individually told you to do. Let me ask you a question. Have you even sought what Jesus wants you to do? Are you worried about what he's called everybody else to do? What has he told you to do? And that's what Jesus is saying. Do what I told you to do inside the general call on the whole church and on the whole group of men. You follow me. Think about this. Peter knows that he's going to be martyred. And did you know that history shows that he served the Lord for three decades with that hanging over him? It didn't happen quick. For three decades, Peter was serving the Lord knowing. Think about how many times Peter thought, well, this is it. But it wasn't. You'll die when God says you'll die. Now, what you do with the life he's given you, now those are decisions you've got to make. But no matter what you do, nobody's going to get in the way of when God says your time is done. But you decide whether you can complete what he told you to do, though. And then he says in verse 23, So the saying spread among the brothers, that the disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. John's clarifying. Jesus didn't say I was going to live forever. He clarifies that. And, and we don't think John did live forever. Now, he, he, we, we don't know. We never know how he died. And we know there were attempts to martyr him that, that never seemed to work, like boiling him in oil and all this. And we know at Patmos, the last time we hear from him, he's been exiled to an island. But John clarifies that Jesus did not say that I'm never going to die. So I take that as that he did, that die an earthly death. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? He's saying, Jesus was just saying, worry about what I told you to do. He didn't say I was going to live forever. 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Thank you, John. 25, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? 
I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John tells us that um, these are firsthand accounts. And, and at the end in 25, he says, this means it's, it's only a minute part of all the honors that are due the Son of God. Jesus is the obedient Son, the risen Lord, the incarnate Word, the one whom the universe was created by. If all his deeds were described, the world would be very small and inadequate as a library indeed. That's what John is saying. Jesus is so much bigger than what I could even tell you. The world itself is an inadequate library to document all the things you need to know about God and the Son of God. I did the best I could with the power that was afforded me. But this doesn't even scratch the surface. Praise His holy name. I hope you've enjoyed the 33-week journey that we've been on as we've walked word for word through the Gospel of John. May we never be the same. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today and thank you for the journey that we've been on. May we take these things and apply them to ourselves. May we be able to say when you ask us, do you love me? May we be able to say with zero fear, Lord, you know all things and you know that you love, that I love you. You know I do. Lord, if we're afraid to say that because we do know you know all things and that maybe you knowing all things means you're looking into our life and you know that we really don't love you. It's just lip service. I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit be so convicting on any life that isn't sure about that, that today that changes. And they submit fully to you and say, Lord, I know that I don't love you the way you love me. I repent of all sin and I submit to your authority completely. And now by the power of the Holy Spirit, please teach me to love you. Teach me to love you, Lord, because I know that you love me. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If I can help you in any way, rick at rickandbubba.com. Excited about starting a new series next Wednesday. And thank you for taking time to walk through the Gospel of John with me. If you've missed any of this at all, go back and pick up any of the, the moments and the weeks that you may have missed. And you can find those at burgessministries.com by clicking on Listen, or you can find them by going to rickandbubba.com this YouTube channel. Thanks for being with us. Hey, this is Rick, and that concludes this week's Bible study. Thank you so much for being with us. If you'd like to go back and hear other Bible studies, or maybe some that you've missed even in this series, you can find them by clicking the media button at BurgessMinistries.com.